0: Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter, a show where we speak to the top thought leaders in health innovation, health policy, care delivery, and the great minds who are shaping the healthcare of the future. This week, Mark and Margaret speak with former Congressman Patrick Kennedy, mental health and addiction activist and founder of the Kennedy Forum, dedicated to advancing policies and best practices, improving access and outcomes for mental health and addiction treatment. He discusses the dramatic rise in mental health and addiction crises in the wake of the pandemic, the Mental Health Parity Act he co-sponsored in 2008, and how the Biden administration's policies will address some of the barriers still at play. We check in with FactCheck.org's managing editor, Lori Robertson, who looks at misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain, separating the fake from the facts. And we end with a bright idea that's improving health and well-being in everyday lives. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also hear us by asking Alexa to play the program. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Congressman Patrick Kennedy, here on Conversations on Healthcare.
1: We're speaking today with former U.S. Congressman Patrick Kennedy, founder of the Kennedy Forum, which seeks to advance policies and programs that advance mental health parity and equal access to treatment.
2: Congressman Kennedy was a chief sponsor of the Mental Health Parity Act, which passed in Congress in 2008 also founder of One Mind for Research and a co-author of A Common Struggle, which chronicles his own family's generations-long struggle with mental health and addiction challenges. Congressman Kennedy, welcome back to Conversations on Health Care. It's been quite a few years.
3: Thank you, it's great to be with you guys again, and thank you all for all that you've done in your lives and careers to advance public health. Really pleased to be with uh, both of you.
1: That's great, and you know, you've called the COVID-19 really a watershed moment for mental health. Obviously, COVID-19 really, it increased the unmet mental health and addiction needs, really has led to increased depression, anxiety, overdose all across the country. And the pandemic truly amplified the awareness of this pervasive issue of unmet mental health needs. Just put this in context for, for our listeners.
3: Well, it's hard to imagine uh, where health care doesn't include mental health care. When we know of the neurobiology behind depression, anxiety, addictions of all kinds, schizophrenia, we, we know these are all biological, heavily genetic mm-hmm. illnesses, yeah. just like other illnesses. And, you know, I was honored to be the author of the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act, which passed in 2008, and frankly, it kind of went under the radar screen. Most mm-hmm. people don't even know it's the law. And because of the shame and stigma around mental illness and addiction, we've never created a movement like uh, breast cancer, or AIDS movement. Th- there's just been no public advocacy to speak of when you think of it in relationship to the fact that it affects every single American. And the pandemic clearly, I think, brought us out of the closet because Everybody could identify with what mental health meant uh, after the pandemic mm-hmm. because everybody was affected either directly or through their family directly. The anxiety, the dislocation, all of that rolled into a lot of other things, including the racial pandemic. And th- there's just an awakening right now. It's kind of a moment of clarity, is what we say in recovery, you know, mm-hmm. where I think as a nation, we finally come to the realization that we have been in denial. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to compare our country to someone who has been sick and hasn't recognized their illness, because the real characteristic of mental illness is the failure to have insight into your illness. I've been in active addiction most of my adult life. I never understood how dysfunctional, how ill I was. Mm-hmm. And of course, we all know about the enabling. That goes on around us with all of our friends and family and in essence it takes them hostage too because uh, once someone around you suffering you're suffering too. We as a nation have just really never wrapped our arms around how much of an elephant this is in our nation's living room and how we as a society have failed to even have the conversation. So I think that both on a personal level and on a societal level, we're ready to have that conversation. And to your point, the indicators are off the charts. I mean, uh, we're losing twice as many people as we lost during the height of the HIV AIDS crisis. And we're spending one fifth the amount of money as we dedicated to fight HIV AIDS. So, and I can tell you as a member of many who are on the front lines, We haven't barely scratched the surface of tackling this illness. And it's all seen through the prism of uh, the money. And it's the famous words, if you really want to know where someone's priorities follow the money, and the money has not come into this space, we still treat mental health and addiction as a as a grant, it reflects the fact that insurance still does not reimburse for mental illness and addiction in the same way that it reimburses for medical and surgical care as is required under federal law. I mean, if this were any other illness, we would have been doing a lot more by now. We spent trillions on cancer and thank God we did. But no one asked when we were spending that money, was it worth it? We all knew as a nation that it was good for us collectively as a nation to lead on biomedical research into cancer. We have not done the same in terms of our neuroscience priorities. And we certainly, in terms of the application of the federal law, never done what we needed to do in terms of enforcement from the provider end to make sure more Americans get access to mental health services as they are today.
2: Well, oh, Congressman Kennedy, and I'm going to ask you to do something that might be challenging I'm going to ask you to find some silver linings here about what what might be happening that might give us some hope for some change down the road. We need a couple of things, certainly uh, integration of care, bringing primary medical care, if you will, and behavioral health care together, not separating them out into domains. Certainly uh, equal treatment coverage uh, for mental health and addiction services under all payers and insurances. Share a couple of things that you have on your radar that you're really fighting for, advocating for, that you think help us move past this uh, public health crisis.
3: Well, I, I couldn't be more excited for where we are. I believe mental health care will be reimbursed mental health care will be reimbursed service within every public school in the nation within the next five years. Mm -hmm. I think if we want to address mental health of our children, which is also at the tip of this pandemic, um, we're going to need to do that. I think we're going to have mandatory social-emotional learning curricula in every public school in America. I think we're, in terms of criminal justice, I think we're going to have a whole new view of how we view recidivism, and we're going to understand that so many who are in the prison system are people who are victims of severe trauma, and I think if we address some of that, we're going to reduce recidivism, uh, because hurt people hurt people. And if we understand that, we're gonna to start to treat the hurt so we can reduce the total number of people that are are continuing to be hurt in this cycle of violence. I think that uh, uh, workplace, I think there are gonna be huge changes in the way mental health is now seen as a priority. I think there's greater neuro literacy. In other words, I think there's gonna be a greater understanding for mental health hygiene. I think that we're gonna, as a nation, want to have a toolkit to learn how do we modulate our own emotions, how do we identify counterproductive thinking patterns, and how do we learn about our brain, our neurobiology, how our thinking uh, affects our acting, and how do we interrupt behavior by moving upstream. I think all of these things mean that we're really in the golden age of understanding mental health in a whole new way, not just as a mental illness, But really, every one of us on the spectrum has, from time to time, various challenges. And also, what do we do to maintain our mental well-being? So this is not the purview of just people with a diagnosis under DSM. It's really all of us. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's an exciting change, that I've seen uh, throughout this pandemic, is now everybody's recognizing that they need to strengthen their toolkits to help their own mental health. Mm
1: -hmm. You know, I was thinking as you were talking about this golden age of mental health awareness, just the struggle that you went through on crafting the Mental Health Parity Act were in 2008, where you probably needed a lot of charts and graphs. But you started off this conversation that people are starting to feel this. It's in their household. It's in their neighborhood. Whole different experience in terms of promoting the advocacy work you had to do. This is now something that's shared by everyone. And I'm just wondering now, you've got the Biden administration in charge. What are the policies that they're going to put into play to increase this momentum? We cannot miss this opportunity because the window we know. We'll close, right? We've all been on this cycle, whether it was domestic violence or HIV or whatever, but right now we've got the Biden administration in charge. You've been uh, lauding them around the American Recovery Act, really this wider access to buprenorphine, a bigger role for things that we're fascinated about in the federally qualified health center, community health center world, but community mental health uh, as well organizations. So walk us through this, this unique moment that we have in time
3: so we're now looking at all aspects of health and i really appreciate that the biden administration has fantastic policy advisors at every level of uh, government and they understand you got to deal with the social determinants of health we got to uh, understand the impact of the racial discrimination that so many of our fellow americans have been uh, suffering from for years and many times unaware of how that affects them because it's more vicarious they see people who look like them, beaten and killed on TV. And that trauma has never fully been dealt with. We have to deal with it. I think the Biden administration is committed to doing so. But now if we're moving towards value-based care, we're looking at the idea that we wrap services together and we're identifying, do they have a stable place to live? That's going to make a huge difference in their success in, in managing their mental health and physical health. And that if we start to look at the bottom line, we'll see that these things that may not be medical may actually have as big, if not more of an impact on the medical spend as anything else that we could look at. We never would have had that perspective a few years ago. And so I really think this is the exciting age because the bottom line is mental health may be the biggest force multiplier that the medical systems never seen before. And once they start to evaluate, that the dollar in is worth you know, four out if they're investing in mental health. Maybe we don't want parity because we're gonna be getting more than our fair share because people will finally realize that this is a part of the system we've never wrapped our arms around. We've never properly focused on quality so that we can actually have expectation that people get better. We've never uh, brought in the value of technology as a remote monitoring device to keep people like myself who, have a both mental illness and addiction are better able to monitor that like a fitbit right we we're now able to take facial recognition with the telemental health and assist clinicians in being able to better diagnose us we're we're going to be able to take vo- voice recognition and modulation tell where we are on a mood meter we're not going to be casting people out into the hinter world when they leave the doctor's office they're always going to remain connected and for people with a pernicious illness that's constantly looking to take people down, such as addiction and mental illness. This new environment is very conducive to the kind of wraparound care that we ultimately have always wanted. And now I think are gonna start to get through some of the reforms that CMMI has taken up and CMS is gonna move forward with and the payers across the country through these ACO models are starting to look at as well.
2: I wanna say that uh... Storytelling is so important in healthcare and in policy and politics and every place else. But I'm really curious, your, your uh, book, A Common Struggle, really is very personal, talks about your own family struggles uh, with these issues and, and makes the case so clearly uh, that these transcend any kind of socioeconomic spectrum. How have your public revelations and, and those of other well-known people shifted the narrative around what we know is truly a family disease, but for a long time was the family disease that nobody talked about?
3: So we know that if we intervene on stage one cancer, rather than stage four, we have a much better shot at saving someone's life. And that's true in mental health and addiction. The earlier the intervene, the better results. But unfortunately, RMO is we we wait till someone has a stage four illness before we actually treat, and that's exacerbated by the fact that we uh, want to keep these illnesses secret, which keeps people sicker than they ever need to be. And the real change we can make that can dramatically change outcomes is by understanding that these are illnesses that we can treat. These illnesses, and the key to it is getting rid of the shame, the stigma. And I've been really after ending the discrimination because I'm not sure we're ever gonna get rid of the attitudes towards people who have these illnesses. Because let's just be honest, it's, uh, it's in our human nature to judge others, not remembering that no one in their right mind would act in those ways if they were healthy. And when someone is getting up every day and feeding an addiction of any kind, they're jeopardizing the relationships with their loved ones their employers, even their freedom. So they're being held hostage by their illness. And I like to think of mental health care providers as those 911, you know, special response force that go in there and help kick down the doors and bring people back into the light. And we're only as sick as our secrets is this refrain and recovery that we use. And it's very true. And our country has been sick because we've collectively been keeping this quiet, and we have to open up. The problem is how can you expect Congress to do more if they're not hearing from us? Mm -hmm. And if because we're feeling shamed, then it's easier for them to overlook our interests in favor of other interests of people that are much louder. So if we want to see things change, we have to start in our own lives And we have to be more open about discussing these things so that we can see uh, more people helped.
1: We're speaking today with former U.S. Congressman Patrick Kennedy, founder of the Kennedy Forum. You know, I want to look at both ends of the spectrum. You were just talking about the technology and sort of the AI and, and other things that really can be force multipliers as we think about the scale that we need. But I was struck by your saying early intervention is the key. Now, we're in 180 school-based health centers. Our focus is to make sure that every school, from kindergarten or preschool up to high school, there's a mental health counselor in there. And so we've been working with School-Based Health Alliance, Robert Boyd and his team. But both of these are important, right? We've seen, uh, because of COVID-19, the advent of telehealth being used in mental health That's and right. parody being played between the phone call and the video, the population we care living at or near poverty, 90% of the people we care for. We're seeing this enormous transformation happening, but we wanna also make sure that fundamental early intervention really in the schools and the best place to begin this conversation with young people, to have it as sort of normalizing uh, their experience. So, you know, you told us a little bit, and I know you're at a virtual behavioral health tech summit today, sure learning a little bit about the exciting things that are coming.
3: Well, uh, my wife is a public school teacher, veteran of the classroom, 6th, 7th, and 8th grade for 14 years. The story she tells that she knows which kids need help, and she has no tools as a teacher to help them. They're crying out for help, and the best thing she can do is send them to the principal's office. That has to change. I believe the back-to-school money, $130 billion, has been set aside. Mental health is, quote-unquote, optional. The Kennedy Forum led by my wife Amy really wrote a letter to the Department of Education. We're expecting to get a letter back from them shortly uh, recommending series of evidence-based interventions that we can pay for in this narrow finite time. There may be things that we could do to bridge these local school systems into an ongoing continuous funding for school-based mental health to fund the very clinics that you've just spoken about. And if we can tie that to Medicaid and get waivers to reimburse for school-based telemental health, we couple that with social-emotional learning. Education today cannot be done without having mental health, social-emotional learning, coping and problem-solving skills all baked into the, the, the day. I I just see this as, again, a a real historic opportunity for us to change how we define education and not segment it away from mental health or healthcare, but combine the two, which is what you have done so effectively and and why I am so grateful for all that you've done to help us advance in that space.
2: So I want to uh, talk about another uh, dimension of this that we haven't really touched on. Love the clarion call for a behavioral health provider uh, in every school. Where is this workforce coming from? We've talked about the need to really educate and train, clinically train, a whole new generation of behavioral health uh, clinicians. Uh, And some will be peer counselors, Mm -hmm. but a lot of people need the full training, licensed uh, independent providers, whether clinical social workers, psychologists, uh, psychiatrists, psychiatric mental health nurse practitioners, and the like. And we're making our contribution to the effort along with many health centers around the country around training. We operate postgraduate residency programs for psychiatric mental health NPs and interns and externs and postdoctoral psychology residents, it's not enough. And, and that we haven't seen uh, as much of a subject of conversation, not enough people who could treat. Um, is your, your institute and your work focusing in on that next generation of behavioral health and addiction workforce at all? And, and if so, share with us what you see as some, some areas of promise.
3: Yeah, so uh, I'm really proud to say uh, I, I left the public sector. I jumped into the private sector. I co-founded a company called Psych Hub, and Psych Hub is in this space. It's about educating all the behavioral health providers to practice in an area of, of specialty so that we could get payers to curate providers based upon those diagnoses that they treat. Rather than being one size fits all single shingle providers that treat depression in the morning and eating disorders, you know, later in the day. We want to have the kind of personalized medicine that we expect in the rest of healthcare. So psycho trains behavioral health providers that train regular medical clinicians because frankly, you know, if you're a cardiologist and not dealing with depression, you know, and you're you're having a post heart attack patient is four times more likely to die of a heart attack if they've got underlying depression. Yeah. I mean, it's all interrelated. We have to do a much better job at certifying kind of uh, expertise amongst those who are professionals, but also amongst everyone else, because it will be some time before we get the workforce up to speed to carry us to meet the need that's out there. Right now, it should be all hands on deck. So not only do we repurpose the primary care system, but let's repurpose the specialty system. I, my sister had cancer. They never even thought of treating her for depression and anxiety as to her oncologist. That was not in his training whatsoever. That's wrong. That's gotta change. Then we've got to empower family members have to be part of the treatment. So they need to be empowered. Then we need to have patients. They need to be trained. They need to know what they should be looking for from their therapist. They can't just walk in and wonder, As I did for a better part of my life, going to therapy where all I did was ruminate about the past, as opposed to coming up with a specific CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy component, where I my acted my way into different thinking, which is essentially what 12-step recovery is so effective at helping you do. We're trying to make sure that bus drivers, custodians, uh, everybody. Frankly, there's nobody that that can't benefit from some mental health ally kind of training. Mm -hmm. And as we move to this 988 system, which is going to complement our 911 system, it's going to be even more important that we have kind of EMTs for mental health in every community. That means we got to build out the infrastructure. I mean, I think firefighters are already doing a lion's share of this already. We need to make sure that they are really understand this is part of their core business, but that they get the of training so that they can do uh, the job that we need them to do as first responders and make sure that it's culturally competent. We don't really have a uh, provider community that necessarily looks like America. We need to have a, a much better representation of all of America in our provider ranks so that people can feel that they can talk to someone with cultural competence, understanding cultural framework, cultural humility. So a lot to do, but as I said, very exciting. And I think we need to revamp our um, tuition loan forgiveness and do our high need categories for loan forgiveness and, and emphasize those areas in mental health as particularly amongst kids and adolescents, which we have such a huge pain point on. Uh, and we need to do all those policies to help meet the need as it is today.
2: We've been speaking today with former U.S. Congressman Patrick Kennedy, founder of the Kennedy Forum and advocate for mental health parity and equal access to care. You can learn more about his vitally important work by going to patrickjkennedy.net or thekennedyforum.org. Follow him on Twitter at PJKforBrainHealth. Congressman Kennedy, thank you so much for continuing to be a tireless advocate for mental health and addiction parity and for joining us again on Conversations on Healthcare.
3: It's been my pleasure. Thank you both for all your service.
4: Federal health officials testified at a May 11th Senate committee hearing that about 60% of their employees have been vaccinated against COVID-19 so far. But viral online posts have distorted their comments to misleadingly claim that half of the employees are refusing the vaccines. The officials did not say anyone had refused to get vaccinated. In the Senate hearing, Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and Dr. Peter Marks with the Food and Drug Administration, both testified that about 60% of their employees had been vaccinated. But viral social media posts distorted those comments, falsely claiming that 40 to 50% of CDC, FDA, and National Institutes of Health employees were refusing the COVID-19 vaccine. One problem with the claim is that the CDC director didn't give a figure on how many CDC employees had been vaccinated, and Fauci is director of one institute among many that make up the NIH. But more importantly, none of the federal health officials said their employees were refusing to get vaccinated. An FDA spokeswoman told us the agency wasn't requiring staff to report their vaccinations, so it doesn't know the exact percentage who have been vaccinated. And the NIAID, which Fauci heads, told us the percentage of NIH staff who got vaccinated at NIH or reported being vaccinated elsewhere is close to 67%. As of June 2nd, nearly 52% of all adults in the United States were fully vaccinated. And that's my Fact Check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org.
2: FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, Email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare.
1: Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Of the 6.6 million births per year in this country, over half are unintended. And among teens, those rates are even higher. Colorado has been conducting an experiment for several years to examine what might happen if sexually active teens and poor women were offered the option of long-term birth control. The first question to answer, would they take the offer?
5: What was so striking was the word of mouth amongst um, these young women to each other and the network of support that was built to access uh, this program through these clinics really did result in um, these significant decreases in unintended pregnancies and abortions.
1: Dr. Larry Wolk, Medical Director of the Colorado Department of Health and Environment.
5: The resultant decrease is plus or minus in in both categories, pregnancy and abortion, even approaching 60% reduction in um, those unintended pregnancies and abortions.
1: There was a significant economic benefit to the state as well.
5: We've seen a significant decrease in the number of young moms and kids uh, applying for and and needing public assistance. This will translate into better social and economic outcomes for these folks.
1: A free long-term contraception program offered to at-risk teens and women trying to avoid the economic hardship of unplanned pregnancies, leading to a number of positive health and economic outcomes for all involved. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli.
0: And I'm Margaret Plinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU, at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com, or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.